Greetings and welcome to the podcast, Bierkergaard, uh, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. I try to say this musically rather than have a music intro. Um, as a reminder, uh, this podcast is exclusively about the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, as you probably know, but if you're a new listener, and I have tried to get a uh, guest onto this show, uh, man, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's not for lack of trying. Uh, my general role is I'll uh, send an email to someone and ask a query if they're interested in, in uh, participating in the podcast. And then uh, if they get back to me, then we'll try to set up a date. And often that's where things break down. Um, I'm not going to hound people. Uh, that's just not where I'm at right now. It gets too stressful. And I have to imagine that's a tough thing about doing a podcast is that uh, if you always need a new guest on, and particularly in the topic that you tend to address like stoicism uh, there's a guy that does the daily stoic and uh, not everybody knows about stoicism so it gets to be a challenge i'm sure to find people that have any sense of coherence about talking about that topic and then um and then getting them on the podcast a logistical issue people are awful busy and uh you know so uh this is a great podcast in the sense I have 30-some books upstairs of Soren's writings, uh, books translated from the Danish to English. Uh, there may be other stuff that's not been translated, but most of it comes through the Princeton University Press, if you don't know that. Anyway, we're finishing up on this book, uh, Purity of Heart is the Will One Thing. Uh, getting into almost the last chapter here, so we're almost finished, believe it or not, and I'm looking forward to uh, concluding the book. That's a sense of accomplishment. Uh, this book's really been valuable. Uh, I've enjoyed reading it uh, very intensely and very closely. I think I bought this book at PAL Books, in, uh, and yeah, it's PAL Books. I bought it in uh, Portland, Oregon. Yesterday I was hanging out with a friend of mine, and I bought a a travel mug uh, from Pals that I drink my Earl Grey tea in because Earl Grey has that uh, special spice in it. I don't recall what it is offhand, but it winds up tainting the uh, the stainless steel inside the travel mug, and it has a certain flavor now. Uh, but it, I drink that tea after I've had my coffee. I don't keep drinking coffee as as the morning continues. But yeah, I bought this at Pals Books in Oregon. If you ever get a chance to go to Pals Books, it's the uh, I think it's the largest bookstore in the United States or close to it. Uh, but we're almost finished this chapter, and I'm pretty excited uh, to uh, get it close to uh, concluding the book. It's not yet. Uh, I think today we'll make some progress, of course. Uh, so, therefore, my listeners, in the carrying out of your occupation, which we have assumed to be something good and honorable, are there means without exception as important to you as the end, or have you have your thoughts become giddy until the greatness of the goal makes you look upon illicit means as of negligible importance? That's a great question. Um, the means and the ends should align, uh, typically. If someone has good means, they'll have good ends. They sell, say the uh, road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, the question I would have, were the intentions good to start with if they turned out so horribly? Maybe sometimes, I don't know. Uh, if somebody's truly being good in their means, though, I think there's a high probability that the uh, the ends are going to be good. I think maybe what was wrong in that calculation is somebody thought something would be good in terms of the means, and it wasn't good for the situation. So was it truly good? It may have not been evil, but it wasn't the appropriate time for something. I don't know, like handing money to people that are begging on the street or asking for assistance is often a a horrible thing to do uh, because a lot of these people are addicted. Uh, much better to offer to give them something. And like food, like buy them food and watch them eat it. Now you can debate whether that's good could keep them stuck in their addiction and things like that. But I mean, people do go through hard times and uh, they can even take things that you give them that you think are for good purposes like diapers and try to sell them to somebody for less because uh, they say their baby needs diapers. So is that really uh, a good a good means to an end? I don't know if people feel better sometimes when they when they give money, but it's better to give time and to get to know the person and try to build a relationship and try to help that person get off the streets. Uh, I think there was a guy named Henry Drummond that wrote a book, The Greatest Thing is Love, and he said, handing a sixpence to a beggar is either too much or too little. 
And uh, there's a middle ground there, which is the relationship. And the person is made in the image of God. And you're trying to awaken that image that has been buried under addiction and sin. And we're all sinners. I don't mean to judge the beggar uh, or somebody begging for food or whatever. Uh, they have a story. And it can't be good in terms of how it's, how it's ending or where it is right now. Uh, so, alas, the state of giddiness is to be found least of all in eternity, for eternity is clear and transparent. Do you think that the greatness of the achievement makes it unnecessary for it to ask about trivial wrong? That is, do you think that a wrong might exist which would be something of no significance, although as an obligation it is infinitely more important than the greatest achievement? Do you think that it is immaterial the way in which a masterpiece is produced? Well, perhaps that might hold for a masterpiece, but do you think that the master dares to be unconcerned about whether he piously consecrates his powers in holy service, or whether by despair in the midst of glittering sins he simply produces a masterpiece. And people can produce beautiful things that were not made uh, with good means, I suppose. I can think of a rock song that is encouraging teenagers to uh, live in sin and be rebellious against authority figures. <clears throat> the rock and roll spirit could be beautifully made, it could be a compelling song, but have a bad moral message. So I think that's essentially what um, Soren is getting at, is that the morality of the message is super important, whether it's aesthetically beautiful or not in one way or another. And if the thoughts uh, does not make you giddy, if you are sober and alert, are you particular in every respect in your use of the means of a youth? and he is uh, blushing an innocent spirit, should turn to you, do you dare without exception to let him know all? In your whole conduct, is there not something, yes, how should I express it? How shall I express it? I could describe it at length, but I'd rather put it briefly in this fashion. Is there not something of which you could be fairly certain that the older, uh, older people and those of your own age would almost admire for its cleverness and ingenuity, if you told them of it, but which, strangely enough, a youth would blush over it, not over you being so clever, you're being so clever, but over your not being big enough to despise acting so cleverly. Yeah. Good point, Soren. Soren is the guest here. Always available. I think Soren lives. Uh, Soren is alive right now. He's in eternity. Gazing upon us poor suckers here on this celestial orb, uh, wishing us the best, weeping for us perhaps. Perhaps it's by flattery that you had won over this person, and that by concealing something won this or that advantage, by a little in truth made a glittering trade, by a false union promoted your cause. Um, I'll use some examples at school. And I've talked about this before as a former school counselor of three decades and also working in education at other institutions uh, before uh, the public school, reform school, I worked at a college for a couple of years. Um, untruth would often bury a person. Uh, if a person was not truthful about a situation or an interaction with other people or paperwork or uh, some procedures. Uh, untruth was pretty black and white if it could be established that a professional was not, uh, was not honest. And I could have my critiques and people critiques of me in school, but I don't think anybody could ever ever level a charge against me that I was dishonest, that I willfully misled people with the facts, what I, what I presented as the facts when I knew they weren't true. And there's a lot of opportunities to do that because we get in a lot of contentious situations working in schools as counselors in particular, and uh, it gets very difficult and very challenging, and feelings are hurt, and Nobody calls the counselor out if there's not a fire. Let's put it that way. We tend to deal with difficult situations. That's part of what we're trained to do. Scheduling is difficult. Our kids don't always get what they want, and that's difficult. You have to be honest about what happened and why they didn't get the course and try to do the best you can within the system to get the class they want or in conflict with teachers or other students. Try to establish what actually happened and sometimes videos and audios. Um, we don't really have audios in school. We shouldn't, but we do have videos of the building in terms of fights and things, and we see what happened. 
So the means are very important, and I saw a lot of very gifted people in my 30 years not make it because they were dishonest. And uh, another thing I wanted to get into, and this is just my personal observation, sometimes we get into situations where we don't know how hard something's going to be, and we're not really lying about you know, what, how much time or energy or resources or involvement of others it's going to take. And so we project uh, positively upon that situation and we think we can make a prognostication of how long it's going to take in terms of resources and time. And we're actually wrong because we've never been in the situation before. Or we have been, but this is just more complicated. But we didn't know that. So we tend to overpromise in things, overpromise and underdeliver. And that leads people to be disappointed in us. Now, I don't think it's lying. Unless a person's habitually doing it, like they're always so grandiose about what they can and can't do, that it becomes a chronic issue and people talk to them about it and say, hey, you know, I made decisions based on what you said and now it's wrong and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, if it's a chronic problem, the person doesn't learn to mediate or adjust their uh, predictions, then I would say that's probably dishonest. But like when I was in my PhD program, I didn't know how long it was going to take. You know, I didn't know how long the dissertation was going to take. And I was relying off my advisors and people I was working with closely to give me some sense of the projection of when I would be done, which wound off wound up being wildly wrong. It took me much more time and much more effort than I thought. And it would be easy for somebody to say, well, Birker was lying about that. And people did. Uh, and I said, no, it's not, not a lie. I am in a new situation that I've never done before that's very difficult. I was relying on the authorities around me to give me some sense of what... The timeline would be, and it's turned out to be incorrect. Um, so over-promise and under-deliver is an issue. So learn to under-promise and over-deliver. That's, a, that's a, a safe place to be. So if you think something's going to take a week, say two weeks, unless you're absolutely sure it's only going to take a week. Um, I try to always uh, inculcate that formula when I am talking about the future with... Uh, people about things that I like to say, well, this is what I think it's going to take in terms of energy and time. Let me add another blah, blah, blah to it just to be safe. And then if I wind up executing the task earlier, then uh, all the better, right? Somebody's going to be happy about that. I'm planning a trip of the United States here in April. I don't know if I'll be doing the podcast during that time. I should be uh, out on the road the end of March, uh, all of April, and the first week of May to some degree. And I'm visiting a lot of family and friends all over the United States. I'm not necessarily the most extroverted per person with hundreds of friends on Facebook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I have about 300 friends on Facebook, I think, close to it. And most of them are friends in one way or another. Um, but being 59, I've accumulated a lot of relationships over the years. So I think there are people that are much younger than me that have many more acquaintances all across the United States because of, uh, you know, maybe doing a trips or connections or going to school somewhere else or um, whatever, you know, whatever reason they have all those relationships for. And uh, my only virtue is I've been around a while and people tend to move on uh, to other locations. This way life, life tends to operate. Some stay and some don't. So I can actually hop, skip, and jump across the United States. Once I get to California, I'm going to get a hotel room, and then I work my way back. Now, through the southern route, I don't have as many friends and family. I do have some, but not as many. But on the way out, I won't have to get hotel rooms until I'm beyond Minneapolis. I have family or friends in Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Chicago, Minneapolis. And then I don't know anybody... Uh, through that until I get to Spokane, Washington. I know somebody there. I know somebody in Portland, Oregon, or Salem, Oregon, which is not far from there. I know somebody in California. And then I'm going to swing down through uh, Texas and Austin. Don't really know anybody there. know a few people from uh, media things, but nobody, nobody close, of course. New Orleans, I think it's just good to visit there once in a while. And I know people in North Carolina and Florida. So, um I am trying to tell people this is what I think I'm going to be doing, and this is when I think I'm going to be in town, but there could be a snowstorm or there could be a car breakdown, which I'm hoping doesn't happen because I have a new car or an accident or I hit a deer or a moose or something. So I'm always prefacing this is when I think I'll be available, and if I wind up missing the mark, at least I'm telling you ahead of time I could miss the mark. Uh, 
some point, I try to be honest about my inability to get my arms around this entirely, but I have to work out the calendar completely today uh, and get it to people and say, does this work for you? I've already kind of checked informally, but I have to do the final confirmation. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'll be doing the podcast in April. I'd have to do it on the road, which is a possibility, For of course. I can do it. The technology is pretty, pretty mobile. I've had a couple friends ask me recently about how to do a podcast, and it's been great because uh, they are interested in doing their own. And I just tell people the technology is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Cell phone, headphones, microphone. Uh, I have the iPhone, which I think is a little bit more compatible sometimes. has a little more tools on it. Uh, find a topic that's unique for you and one that you can speak to with a unique, uh, what I call unique podcast proposition. And I love Soren, and I'm the only person in the English language, at least, that dedicates a podcast exclusively to him, as I've told you before. Uh, but find a niche that winds up being something that you can talk about in an arresting way or interesting. And my read of the situation is most of you like my personal rants and my getting off on tangents. Some people it really, really irritates, but as I look at the... Um, the listens of the podcasts, and I also look at the ratings and uh, and look at the reviews. If they have people have written a review, eh, it tends to be pretty much leaning towards keep on doing the way that you're doing it. And the last couple times, I've been more reticent about expressing uh, some personal things in my life, just because I've tried to be a little bit more focused. But you all seem to like that to some degree. It's within reason, I suppose. And what is your attitude attitude towards others? Soren asked this very, very question. And what is your attitude toward others? Are you at one with all by willing only one thing? I think attitude is so, so important. It's so undervalued. The attitude that we have just towards others and towards life and towards towards adversity. And if you have the one thing to try to glorify God and to try to find the good in the situation, if that's really our heart's intent, we may not find it, but we have a better chance of finding it. It's hard to uh, it's hard to make good things happen. We've talked about that a lot. Um, and I was down in Philly with my cousin, uh, not last Monday, the Monday before last, and uh, we were attending an event at a place called Monk's Cafe, and they were rolling out a beer. It's only once a year. It's called Pliny the Younger. It's a a variation on their beer, Pliny the Elder, which is a double IPA. So for those of you who like uh, IPAs, India Pale Ales, uh, Pliny the Elder is a double IPA. It's heavily hopped. It's fairly high in alcohol. It has a very good taste. Uh, But then uh, Russian River out in California, one of the places I want to visit when I'm out in California, hopefully in April, um... They do a variation on that where they double down on the hops and some of the other uh, ingredients like malt and make it a stronger version of the elder. They make the younger. And Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger are both historical figures, and I think they were related. They might have been father, son, I don't remember. And I think Pliny the Elder had something to do with domesticating hops or something. And we were waiting in line at Monk's Cafe, and it's only once a year that they have this available, and Monk's is one of the few establishments on the East Coast that gets it. All the distributorship of that beer comes through Philadelphia. One distributor does it, and there's only three or four places that get the, get the younger. Monk's is uh, the leading place that gets it. And so they had an event. It was a fundraiser, not last Monday, but the Monday before last, President's Day in the United States. And you had to wait in line for it. And I finally got in the door with my cousin, which was great that he came down from New York and we did it together. And it cost $15 uh, for a sample of this beer, five ounces. Now, that's a bit extreme, but it was a fundraiser. And as the person was handing me the beer, I was also trying to put my wallet back in my pocket because I gave them a 20. I needed $5 in change because operating completely off of cash down there. It's for the fundraiser. And I hadn't quite got the wallet back in my pocket. I was still adjusting the bills when the guy handed me the beer, like he wants to get people through the line, he wants to move it forward. And I grabbed the beer, but then I said, hey, could I give this back to you for a minute or could I put it on the bar here? Because I have to give a wallet back in my pocket with the money, uh, you know, intact inside rather than falling out. The guy said, I learned something today. It's, you know, if you're in a situation where you're trying to do one thing, don't try to do something else. Um, 
I, I should have probably told him just to hold the beer while I put the wallet back in my pocket. But he, again, he was kind of processing people quickly. And I thought maybe I could get the wallet into my pocket while I was grabbing the beer. Use one hand to do one and kind of do the both together. And uh, it turned out to be more complicated than I thought. So rather than trying to do it all at once, I just did one thing, which is put the beer back on the counter or hand it back to him. And he, the guy made an observation who was working the line. I think he's one of the higher-ups at Monk's Cafe. He said, I learned something today to like ask and to stop and to do, to do something like one at a time. And I always thought, like, when Christ hands us the cup of living water, he says, drink of me, all that you are thirsty. And, you know, we have our hands full with other stuff, possessions and power and pleasure. And, you know, Christ hands us the living water and we can't grab it because our hands are full. I think that's what Soren would say is willing the one thing is uh, have an attitude of, no, that water is the most important thing of all this. We're parched. We're spiritually parched. And Christ comes to us in the desert and hands us himself. And there are uh, stories in the Bible where he actually does provide water to people. The woman at the well, and she winds up being converted. She's a Samaritan. And she goes and tells all the fellow villagers about this man called Jesus and the Messiah. Samaritans were half-Jews. They had intermixed with um, the Canaanites and all this and that. Complicated story there. But... Uh, Christ preached to them and they were converted too. So the gospel is for everyone, not just for the Jews. And what is your attitude towards others? Are you at one with all by willing only one thing? So when Christ hands us the cup of living water himself, we can't have our hands so full. We have to put stuff down. These other things are fine often. They're not bad. Uh, Food, possessions, uh, sexuality, uh, whatever. Uh, just put those things down. And I also identify in my soul when I'm feeling parched. There's times I feel lost or lonely. We're ambivalent about life. I feel that sense of vanity. And I just say, God, I've lost, lost you in the midst of all this. And I try to refocus myself on the gospel and on Christ and let him fill me up. All these other things are fine, usually. Uh, not always. Uh, but take time to take the cup that's handed to us. And what is your attitude are, are others? Are you at one with all by willing only one thing? And sort of makes the point that God already knows us. He already knows our hearts. He already knows our intentions. He judges the heart of man and puts it on the scale. And he already knows, he already knows you. It's not like we're hiding from him. And that's why Soren says that we can't allow the crowd to give us the impression that somehow we're avoiding identification. Uh, God is the master of uh, everything. He knows everything. So if we think we're fooling him by our deceptions and by our illicit means, um, these days there's a lot of politicians that will lie and, and distort the facts in order to accomplish what they perceive as a greater good, which is handed to the libs. You know, make the libs pay for their wackiness or vice versa. The liberals will distort facts uh, to put conservatives in a bad light. A lot of times people just omit things they know. It's not always actively lying, although that is a problem, no doubt about it. But to withhold uh, facts that you know to be true that um, diminish the power of your argument is also lying. And people often don't see that. And that's more what liberals are guilty of. They withhold information. Whereas I think there are some conservatives right now that are so anti-liberal and they want to really make the liberals pay that they'll resort to almost any means to accomplish that goal to destroy uh, their enemies. I'm not saying leftists don't do that either. I think the liberal media just tends to ignore stuff that runs counter to the narrative. Uh, They tend to withhold information. And they pretend like they're doing the right thing by doing that. <clears throat> so then what is your attitude or, towards others? Are you one with all but willing the only one thing? Or do you contentiously belong to a party? Or is your hand raised against every man and every man's hand raised against you? Do you wish for all others uh, what you wish for yourself? Or do you desire the highest thing of all for you and yours? Or do you desire that that, that which you you and yours desire shall be the highest thing of all. Do you do unto others what you will that they should do unto you by willing only one thing? Now, in matters of style, 
uh, like ice cream or flavors of food or types of food or things like that. There's a lot of diversity in the world, but nobody likes to be treated with disrespect. Nobody likes to be accused of lying if they're not. Nobody likes to be hated. Nobody wants to be labeled. Uh, Soren has a saying, if you label me, you negate me. So if we call somebody this, boom, that's a way of reducing their humanity. Uh, even the people we profoundly disagree with, we should always honor the image of God in them. So this uh, loving others or doing unto others as we would have them do unto us is more of an ethical teaching. It's not a style teaching. We can't expect people to like things the same way that we like them. Like if I like cold weather, I can't assume that people like cold weather and turn the heat down in the house or whatever. Um, it's more of a style issue or temperament issue or something. We're talking ethically. For this will is the eternal order that governs all things, that brings you into union with the dead and with the men whom you never see, with foreign people whose language and customs you do not know, with all men upon the whole earth who are related to each other. Um, he already knows us. He already knows our means. Uh, so that's going to be today's uh, today's title for the uh, podcast it often comes out in the actual writing he already knows you we're not fooling god man he's not some senile old deity in the sky grandpa he's got bad eyesight and bad hearing that you can that you can finagle other by the blood eternally related to the divine by eternity's task of willing the only only one thing do you wish that there should be Another law for you and yours than for the others. Do you wish to find your consolation in something other than that in which each man, without exception, may and shall find consolation? Suppose that some sometime a king and a beggar, a beggar and a man like yourself should come to you in their presence. Would you dare frankly confess that which you desire in the world in which you sought? your consolation certain that the king and his majesty would not despise you even though you were a man of inferior rank certain that the beggar would not go away envious that he certain that the beggar would not go away envious that he could not have the same consolation certain that the man like yourself would be pleased by your frankness alas there is something in this world called clannishness what's the founding fathers called faction you know it's the it's the party system, but it's more than that. It's a rowdy mob. Founding Fathers of the United States really did not anticipate um, the formation of parties. And it used to be that when a election for president started, uh, the person that was president was the person that got the most votes. And the person that was vice president, even if a different party, was, would be the person that got the second amount of votes. So it created some odd bedfellows in terms of um, the founding fathers. I think Jefferson was the vice president in uh, Washington's cabinet. I'm pretty sure that was the case. But it had people that had diametrically opposed views on uh, governance in the same cabinet. And we changed that at some point later, but uh, just kind of the founding fathers really wanted the republic to be something that people had mutual affection for, but they had different ways of thinking that goal would be accomplished. Like Washington was more influenced by Hamilton and wanted a stronger central government to have more authority and for like financial matters and treasury and issues like that. Whereas Jefferson was more of the, the rural, uh, wanted to empower agrarian America and it indirectly kind of supported slavery with uh, the states and all that. <clears throat> so Jefferson was more of a local control person. Uh, he thought that was better. And there's tension between the two positions. And uh, people like Adams and Jefferson were on opposite ends of the spectrum, and it created problems in their relationship for many years. And Jefferson was a bit devious in terms of how he expressed his um, disagreement. Despite his high level of rhetoric, he... He did a lot of selfish things and sneaky stuff. Um, do you wish to find consolation in something other than that in which each man, without exception, may and still find consolation? So we talked about the beggar thing. It is a dangerous thing because all clannishness is divisive. It really is. Uh, it's the need for scapegoat. People feel unified when they can hate the same thing. 
It is divisive when clannishness uh, shuts out the uh, common citizen and when it shuts out the noble born and when it shuts out the civil servant. It is divisive when it shuts out the king and when it shuts out the beggar and when it shuts out the wise man and when it shuts out the simple soul. For all clannishness is the enemy of universal humanity. Now, Soren's not a, a Fabian socialist here. He realizes that there's real differences in humanity. And some people are privileged and some people are not. And some people have got the good stick of life and some people are getting beaten with that stick. But all people should be treated the same regardless of station. And at work I tried to do that, as I've talked about before, that we had a lot of really poor kids that grew up in very difficult in deprived environments, you know, deprived of resources, and perhaps other ways. In other ways, and we had some kids that were more the typical suburban, white middle class kid that had privilege, and uh, didn't want to just uh, cater to the popular kid or the kid that's easy to like. Every kid had a story, and some of the greatest kids I knew were the kids, the kids that went through the hardest things, uh, because it taught them compassion and empathy. Look at the French Revolution or what happened in uh, like Mao's uh, cultural revolution in China where they destroyed the intelligentsia because they thought they were westernized. You know, Mao and the communists went after all the professionals and all the doctors and all the college professors and the engineers or anybody that had been educated because he saw that as westernization. And so they, they turned the uh, bourgeoisie into the enemy. And the Taliban's done that in Afghanistan, at least the first time through. I think it's learned its lesson to some degree that you can't kill the knowledgeable people because you need their knowledge to run hospitals and run schools and to run businesses. And you can't just uh, fight your whole life. At some point, you have to build something. And there are movements that are better at destroying stuff than they are at building things. And the Taliban's an example of that. But the French Revolution, you know, with Marie Antoinette and all the aristocracy losing their losing their heads by the guillotine and the clerical the clerical parties losing access to their lands or rights to all the lands they owned and being redistributed, but it was very bloody. Um, be careful about joining those kind of movements. All clannishness is the enemy of universal humanity. But to, tell, to only will one thing generally is to will the good as an individual, to will, to hold fast to God, which things each person without exception is capable of doing, that is what unites. And if you sat in a lonely prison far from all men, or if you were placed out upon a desert island with only animals for company, if you generally will the good, if you hold fast to God, then you are in unity with all men. So our common identity in God is really what connects us. There's nothing else that can provide that level of connection and empathy. If we know that we have been created by God in his image, that gives us an instantaneous connection to every other person that has lived and will ever live. And anyone who's not, uh, not of that orientation, if, they're not, uh, if they don't believe that, then they're trying to find something else to build that connection or that bridge upon. And I'm going to tell you, it's a very weak uh, bridge that's going to collapse because hatred is strong or apathy is strong. And it's not that we always hate people. I think the hatred can be expressed as just a lack of considering others, uh, that we're so selfish and so under our own little cr crowd and clan that we really don't give a rip about other people. That's hatred. That's an apathetic hatred. It's not hot. It's a cold hate. Uh, it's just that we can't hear the cries or the screams. We just don't give a rip one way or another. You know, poor peasants. Um, I listened to a podcast recently about the uh, the book Robinson Crusoe. And it's actually based on a true story. Uh, the, what the guy's name wasn't Robinson Crusoe. That uh, The person, the author, Daniel Defoe, I think, or whoever wrote that book, I don't recall. Uh, but there was a real person who was uh, kicked off the boat because he was a willful, selfish whatever person didn't get along with the other crew and was put on a deserted island. And in the three or four years that he was on this deserted island, um, the only other human contact he had was with the Spanish at one point. He had to run away from them because he was English and he would have been imprisoned. But he was eventually saved off the island by a British, a British ship. And he became a much better person when he was on the deserted island. He read his Bible. He learned to uh, function and survive and to build a culture for himself and uh, had structure to his life, prayer in the morning, reading scriptures. He befriended a bunch of wild cats, and they provided companionship. 
And he came off the island a better person than went back into society and had problems again because the society is complicated. Uh, so, <clears throat> and if you sat in a lonely prison far from all men, or if you were placed upon a deserted island with only animals for company, if you generally will the good, if you hold fast to God, uh, then you are in unity with all men. And if a terrible thing happened for religious edification, should not, like a woman's finery, be attended for a splendid moment that you were buried alive. Ooh. If you, as you wake into the coffin, you seized upon your accustomed consolation, then even in this lonely torment, you would be in unity with all men. Is this your present attitude? Have you no special privilege, no special talent, none of life's special favors that either separately or in company with some others, vanity has led you to take so that you could console yourself by means of it? And if that makes, and that makes you dare not tell the uninitiated the source of your consolation, thus you give alms to the poor man so that he can console himself, but treacherously you have further consolation for yourself to be sure. You give a consolation from poverty, but you console yourself by the fact that your wealth assures you against ever becoming poor. You help to set the simple ones right, but treacherously you have a further consolation for yourself. Your talent is so outstanding that it could never happen that when you awake it tomorrow, you were the stupidest person in all the land. You wish to instruct the youth, but you do not have the heart to take him into your confidence because you have a secret of your own, because you are a traitor who deceived youth as to what the highest thing of all by your secret, and deceived yourself as to what the highest thing of all by your secret. And now a question concerning the sufferer. It is not a question of the state of his health. No, the talk is not sympathetic in this respect. Oh, but if you actively consider the occasion of this talk, then by being in the presence of God, you would raise yourself above human sympathy. Then you would no longer pine wretchedly for sympathy from other human beings. I would decide that parenthetically. For although it happens all too seldom, if this could properly be proved to you, as you may well wish that it might, then with uh, cheerful frankness, you could give thanks for it. You would not give thanks bent over like a beggar. God would prevent that. And if, if, if sympathy is denied you, if a man is afraid and in a selfish and cowardly manner avoids, yes, almost loathes you because he does not dare to think of your suffering, then you should be able to do without the sympathy. Frankly, if we live for other people's sympathy, most people just don't care. <laughs> they don't care about us. Uh, we have to admit that we really don't care about a lot, of, a lot of other people either. If we're really honest, it's a rare person that really uh, wraps their arms around the world and lives beyond themselves. And that's why we admire people that do that. It's so hard to do. And again, it's not that we hate people. It's not that we're evil in this way. I mean, maybe it's evil, but it's a soft evil of just ignoring the plight of others. We just don't care. We just don't care. And this podcast is my attempt to care. Believe it or not, I'm not really that much into building a platform. I find that stressful. You know, all these people that are out there sending tweets about how to build your platform and how to win an audience and how to monetize and how to get your message out. I scrape on that a bit, on that chrome, on that shiny veneer, those promises of a platform and I just go that sounds so exhausting so it sounds so tiring to try to impress people and try to get people to follow me and try to get people to promote my platform uh, and it often has a financial angle the hidden message is hey follow me so I can get into your wallet into your purse or into your bank account and I vowed with this podcast not to do that that this podcast shall be free uh, for consumption because I don't think it makes it less valuable. It's the content that's valuable because I talk about God. And uh, if that's not gold, then nothing is. Um, uh, so I want to make this free. I would accept sponsors like I've talked about before, like a coffee company that I believed in that is empowering farmers to get a fair wage for their, for their coffee beans. I, I would allow a promotion like that or a business that I believed in. Uh, so there might be an indirect payoff here. I've talked about if you want to support uh, this podcast, uh, put up a positive review on uh, on iTunes or uh, the podcast networks, platforms that are out there. That's the biggest thing. Or you could also go out and or, it's not either, uh, you could go out and buy my book, uh, On the Edge, 
live uh, <laughs> on the edge. Uh, transitioning imaginatively to college. I had to remember what the subtitle was. Oh, shoot. But somebody uh, bought my book recently and read it, and it's far beyond the college years, but said it had some helpful advice and was uh, not a hard read, but hopefully a worthwhile read. Uh, but that book's available on lulu.com. Uh, that's the best place to buy it because that's where I get the most uh, remuneration for my efforts. Uh, it's, not hard, it's not wrong to be paid for your work. Uh, so that's okay. If you want to buy my book or buy it for a college a student going to college, um, that would be great. It's available on Kindle. It's available on Amazon, of course. They just don't get as much money from it, but that's okay. Uh, but yeah, it's, it just sounds so exhausting to try to build a platform and try to get an audience. It's like it's, I just don't care. And I've talked about this before, is that if, if this podcast winds up becoming more of a stressor, like just one more thing, I mean, I spent my life dealing with problems, and that's fine. It was great because I, I, I built a professional career off of <laughs> becoming a, a professional problem solver. You know, and that's what I did. And it wasn't just one problem at a time. I had to solve many problems at a time or try to work things towards a sense of solution, a compromise maybe. And that's what I dream about still. I still have dreams about work where I'm caught in these really difficult situations and I have to work through them. And it was demanding, and it was challenging. It was invigorating sometimes because I was successful at it. Uh, so it wasn't like I felt a sense of um, punishment all the time, but there was a punishing element to it occasionally. And it's, it's funny, I've turned this problem-solving thing around to get to some personal stuff here, because you guys like this, apparently. If you don't, just let me know. Uh, people have reached out to me on uh, the socials. Uh, Birkegaard, B-I-E-R-K-E-R-G-A-A-R-D. Uh, it's available on Twitter, it's available on Facebook, it's available on Instagram. So if you uh, like this podcast, want to give me a, a personal note of encouragement or uh, chastise the crap out of me, go for it. I always appreciate that privately, if possible. No need to go public unless you feel like you need to make a statement for some reason and beat your chest and make noise. I think it's not productive. It makes people defensive. There's a time to go public. We've talked about that previously. Um but yeah, I use my problem solving now to do things around my house and in my life. Like I got my financial matters straightened out. I got my my money in a better place where it's making interest versus where it was before in my local account, bank account that was doing some things I didn't agree with and trying to enforce rules of its own system versus the legal system, which I had a problem with. I created a great deal of pain on their part because they were being dishonest about stuff eventually. Uh... But also around the house, like getting things up to the 21st century, uh, I tend to keep things as they're, if they're still working in one way, uh, but it's not the most compatible with the technology that exists today. So I spent a lot of time kind of increasing the quality of my life, and I'm struggling with it because I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to just feather my nest here. And there's a line between frugality, which is good, and being like tight-fisted, which isn't good, but it's not good to be profligate either and say, hey, I have the money, I can just spend it on stuff. Uh, so I like to uh, try to like weigh things and wean myself off of affections where I don't need to have like the hundred channels of paid cable so I can just gratify my, my eyes with all kinds of stuff that I shouldn't spend time doing. And uh, this is an example, I bought a light recently that was on a podcast, three or four podcasts ago, where a friend of mine came to my house and said, it's awfully dark in here, and it affected his mood because he's a very emotional, artistic person. He said, you really need another light in your living room, so I bought another light. And the uh, uh, consequent uh, uh, action has created the need or the desire for me to read more because the light uh, provides better uh, illumination of the books underneath it because it's a, it's a floor lamp that goes up and up and up and light comes down versus side to side. And uh, Amazon had to send me another lamp because they forgot to include the light bulb in the first box. At least I think they did. So rather than send me just the light bulb the second time, they sent me another lamp entirely with the light bulb. <laughs> so now I have that up in my bedroom that also has that height to it. It's not a side lamp sitting on the dresser. It is um, a, a floor lamp that uh, is on a pole that goes above my head, above the bed, and shines down. So now I can read much better in my bed uh, book uh, versus like attaching a uh, portable LED light to the book uh, cover, which is what I had to do in the past because the light sat on the uh, dresser to the side. 
it's stuff like that or cleaning out the refrigerator when it's grody versus saying I don't have time, I just don't want to deal with it. Blah, blah, blah. So I'm using all this problem-solving ability that I used to direct to my job around my house. It's more micro-oriented, um, and it's been really refreshing. I mean, I, it's caused me to say, like, why do I, why am I so frugal? Why am I so unwilling to spend money on myself? Like, why, what is this need to self-flagellate and, uh, to, and to suffer a bit rather than just take the uh, less complicated better way through it and again it's protected me from debt it's protected me from going above my head financially but it's come at a cost that the qualitative nature of my life has been more black and white than color and now with like apple music and paying the subscription fee i'm getting access to all these bands that i know about but never listened to before so the color of my life has greatly improved in retirement which is really ideally if we could all craft our destiny to some extent we'd want retirement to be less painful and less sacrificial maybe than our work life. Uh, maybe a time to enjoy the fruits of our labor a bit. Because we know that we're not going to be around forever and the money is to be used in, in godly but good ways. And it's not wrong to uh, to enjoy that, I suppose, if we acquired those things uh, in a rightful manner. So I'm trying to learn that myself. I'm trying to become more gracious towards myself and be kinder towards myself without being selfish. And it's it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to do sometimes. So anyway, uh, that's a personal reflection on some stuff. I hope everybody uh, obviously is doing well. Thank you so much for giving me your time. We've talked about this enough is that talk is cheap, but time is valuable. And time is, is the, the clock is always ticking. And somebody who doesn't value time, they're losing the most precious resource that we have. Money comes and goes, uh, but your time, your time is something that you really should protect. And... Uh, when you spend it listening to this podcast, I take that as an enormous compliment. I don't want to sound corny or flattering here. I just appreciate the fact that you would spend time listening to this. Hopefully that sounds balanced and sounds fine and sounds good. Um, so I think that's it for today. I'll keep you posted on the road trip planning. I have to go back into my Google Doc today and nail down the times and communicate individually with people and kindness. I think one thing that I got from today was kindness. And uh, a buddy of mine uh, sent me a text last night. He's from California. He lives in California. Uh, but he sent it out to a group of people. These are all the people that I hope to connect with on my road trip. And rather than send me this individual YouTube link to myself, he sent it to everybody, which it wasn't anything bad. It was actually really good. Um, but it was about a basketball player, two basketball players. Um, we both share a love of basketball. My buddy in California, who used to live here, um, I'll end with the story in terms of kindness and how um, just treating others as we want to be treated. Uh, so spare me a moment as I tell you this story. I just got the text this morning. My buddy had sent it last night. But he sent it to everybody, which is like nine people. <laughs> and he apologized and sent it again uh, to me only. And there's a story of a guy that when he was a trainer, when he was a little kid, he uh, worked in the L.A. Clippers locker room uh, with like, uh, like providing socks or jerseys to other players and this and that. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that seven-foot-one guy that had the skyhook from the L.A. Lakers, chastised him one time for screwing up, like was really on his, on his back about something. He was just a little kid, like working in the, in the locker room uh, for the uh, San Diego uh, Clippers. They used to be in San Diego, now they're in L.A. also. So Kareem was really, really harsh on this little kid and broke his spirit. Now he's a grown man, he's telling the story. And his mom forced him to go back and not quit the job. The kid wanted to quit the job after... Uh, after Kareem just dumped on him. And Kareem is a bit of an adversarial guy at times. He's not stupid, of course, uh, but he's not always kind to people. I think that's fair to say. Uh, and so his mom forced him to go back and continue to work as the, uh, the locker boy or whatever you call him. And uh, a new team came to town, Dr. J, uh, Julius Irving from the Philadelphia 76ers. And I grew up watching the Sixers, and Julius Irving was the icon of basketball excellence. And a lot of you who are younger have no idea who I'm talking about. But look at some YouTube videos of Julius Irving, Dr. J. And uh, so this kid was back in the locker room, new opportunity to help out a professional athlete, and gave Julius Irving six pair of socks. And uh, Julius pulled him aside and said, hey, young man, put his hand on his back. And Julius has a huge hand. I shook it one time. His hand is like the uh, like an octopus. It just extends and extends and extends. They could hold the basketball like a grapefruit. That's one of the reasons why he was such a great dunker. And... Uh, 
he was very compassionate to this young guy. He said, why'd you give me a sick pair of socks? He said, how many feet do I have? And the kid says, two. He said, yeah, precisely. I don't need six pair. But he's very kind to the kid. He corrected him, but he was kind to him. Uh, so you can be correcting and still be kind, right? Kids need that. Uh, become a better better locker boy. And, but Julius very nice to him and said, uh, yeah, I only need two pair of socks, so you don't, you don't need to give me six. And uh, he signed the socks. He autographed them and gave them to this kid to give to his siblings, because he asked him how many siblings the kid had. He said, they have five or whatever, four. So, so he signed all the socks, Julius Irving, Dr. J, and gave them to the kid to give to his brothers and sisters. And now this guy is like probably 50 years old. Julius Irving's kind of an older guy now. He's like 72, and he walks with a, um, a cane. Uh, so if you have any remembrance of Julius Irving taking off from the, the foul line and dunking a basketball, it's it's sad to see him old and hobbled, you know, a bit. It really is, because it reminds me of how old I'm getting. Uh, but this guy who was telling the story on this podcast, this video uh, on YouTube, um, apparently became fairly uh, fairly influential at some point, like whatever, like in media opportunities or whatever, ran a company, and he said he never directed uh, work to Kareem ever again. Like as he got older, he never forgot how Kareem treated him when he was a little kid. And he never forgot how Julius Irving was so kind to him and was gracious to him as just a little guy. Now, Julius had a lot of pain in his life, as did Kareem. They both um, were African-American in a time when it wasn't great to uh, experience racism and prejudice and all the things that came with that. Uh, uh, Kareem became more defiant. Julius uh, acted with a lot of class. He still did things like started his own business and became an entrepreneur helped out hundreds of people. And Julius has had problems in his life. I won't get into it. He's not a perfect man. But I met him one time in college when he was at the apex of his career. He was very kind to me. Uh, I just said I admired him so much. I think I gave him a note because I couldn't speak. I was just uh, dumbfounded as if I came to face to face with God. And he just thanked me for the note. And it really touched me that he was he was so nice to me. And uh, Julius Irving will always have a place in my heart. He's a real classy guy. So maybe I'll post that link in terms of how kind he was to this kid. But apparently he had a consequence, and the kid wasn't didn't think that when he was like a little guy. Like, I'm going to get back at Kareem. Like, I'll start a business and direct business away from him because he's so mean to me. He was so mean to me as a child. Uh, but our kindness often comes back in ways that we can't expect, and we shouldn't do it in a selfish way. We just do it to do the right thing and trust that the seeds of goodness will prevail. So I wanted to end with that story. Uh, of how Soren would say that we have to treat others as we want to be treated. And to discourage a kid as an adult, to ex expect that a kid knows everything and knows how to do things on their first or second day of the job is unrealistic. And Julius Irving was able to coach the kid. I said Julius had a lot of pain in his life. Uh, Julius lost a brother to, uh, through lupus. Uh, so Julius always had a sad side to him, but it made him a better human, I think, in a lot of ways. And thank you, Julius Irving, for being such a role model when I was growing up. You gave me a lot of uh, a lot of joy by your basketball skill, but you also taught me how to be a good person and a better person. Again, he had his problems. I'm not going to get into them now. And even our even the best people in this world have have a have a dark side or have a a side that isn't great sometimes. So we shouldn't put people on pedestals. But he could have been a lot worse than he was. Let's put it that way. And he did a lot of good in life and still does. So bless you. We'll talk to you soon.